0: PFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the Senate confirmation hearings for Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson follow a familiar script in which nominees say nothing about how they'll decide cases and opponents look for scandal. Progressives instead should be arguing outside the hearings, as well as inside that the Constitution requires protecting our Republican form of government from becoming a moneyed aristocracy or an oligarchy. That's what Joseph Fishkin and William E. Forbath say. We'll speak with them later in the hour. Also, Congressman Jamie Raskin, member of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, will talk about the committee's evidence against Trump and the committee's future, if Republicans prevail in the midterms. He represents Maryland's eighth district in the House and was manager of Trump's second impeachment trial. But first, our Washington political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, first, let's talk about the Democrats in the midterms. Uh, Since the demise of Biden's Build Back Better bill, the Democrats need other achievements to run on in the midterms, and that means Biden should start using executive action, the power he has to change policies without new legislation. Last week, the Congressional Progressive Caucus um, increased the the pressure on Biden to start start doing this. They had 55 recommendations. I don't think we can go through all of those. The big ones are canceling student debt, extinguishing pharmaceutical patents to lower uh, drug prices, strengthening overtime protections for salaried workers, ramping up TPS, temporary protective status for undocumented immigrants. I wonder if you have some favorites on this list.
1: Uh, Well, if you look at this purely politically and the the question of what can help the Democrats not get uh, lose both houses of, uh, of Congress in the midterm, I think uh, a cancellation of student debt uh, goes right to the top of the list. There's some polling, uh, some pretty accurate polling, I think that shows that uh, uh, Biden's approval rating among uh, millennials and Gen Zers, that is to say voters under 30, uh, ha- has dropped by 25% since the early months of his presidency. So I think canceling a chunk of, of student debt is, uh, is, is a, a, a both economically and uh, politically, uh, not to mention morally, uh, the right thing to do. Now, he has to do something because the moratorium on student debt and pe- on making payments uh, expires on May 2nd. And so it's pretty clear that, at minimum, he is going to extend that moratorium for the rest of the year. Uh, My sense is that's not enough, even politically, because I don't think that would get the kind of impact uh, among the 37 million Americans who owe student debt and their families, which probably gets us close to 100 million Americans, uh, who, uh, you know, that uh, the impact would come from actually uh, canceling it. Now, I suspect politically, particularly given uh you know concerns about the deficit which uh, uh, Joe Manchin among others seems to have uh, he I, I don't think uh, it's in the cards that he could cancel all of it but he certainly could easily live up to his pledge to cancel the first ten thousand or twenty thousand bucks which would I think go a long way to help a lot of people who went to college.
0: The other big one, which is extremely popular, is cutting prescription drug prices. Here, I have a favorite favorite one. Um, There's a prostate drug named Xtandi, X-T-A-N-D-I, developed with grants from the NIH and the US Army. In the United States, a year's worth of pills costs $188,000. There are two generics ready to go, and they'll cost $3 a pill. They'll cost 2% of the current price. The drug has already been super profitable for the patent holders. They've made more than $20 billion in overall revenue. Uh, There is a legal basis for saying that because this was funded by government uh, research money, it should go to the generic right now and uh, he could do this through uh, executive action. And, of course, lots of old men would benefit from a cheap prostate
1: drug. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a no-brainer. And it raises the question, which is a very good question, of why the uh, proceeds uh, when drugs are sold, the prescription drugs are sold, that have been largely developed by governmental agencies don't also go to the government. Uh, you know, I mean, if I'm waging a uh, campaign in the media uh, to get this done, I would argue, since the U.S. Army helped develop this, that by not sharing, the uh, make, uh, the vendors of this drug, whichever company it may be, uh, have been uh, essentially harming the U.S. military. I think, you know, in my <laughs> Political <laughs> consultant uh, brain lobes, that seems to pop, uh, pop uh, into my head. So, uh, yeah, but there's, the a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of uh, prescription uh, drug price reductions, and that should be part of, you know, uh, what the Democrats try to do legislatively as well. And the Congressional Progressive Caucus said that this doesn't mean we're taking the legislative uh, possibilities off the table. Uh, you know, and it, it's it's quite possible that these yet could be part of a reconciliation bill that isn't, uh, you know, that may just be a fraction of bill back better, but uh, might get finally the fifty-one votes it would need to pass the Senate.
0: And there's one other thing about going to generics. The biggest buyer of drugs in the United States is Medicare, and if Medicare only has to pay two percent of the current price of this drug, it's going to save the American taxpayers a huge amount of money.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's a winning argument uh, in a time of uh, of inflation. I mean, a lot of the Build Back Better agenda was about helping uh, Americans reduce their costs. Uh, that uh, was about childcare. That's about uh, universal pre-K. What do we do with the kids when they're four years old? Uh, it's about uh, uh, drug prices uh, and it's about student debt I mean there there's some really clear elements there it's also the child uh, uh, tax credit but that seems to be off the table since it doesn't have the su- striking it doesn't have the support of uh, the dynamic duo of mansion and cinema
0: well now it's news time for news of the class struggle in America a regular feature of this broadcast. Um, Forced arbitration has always been a weapon of the employers in class conflict in America. Last Thursday, the House voted on a bill banning all forced arbitration. What is this about?
1: Well, it's actually not always been in the toolkit of employers, but it's certainly been in the toolkit of employers in recent decades. And it works for it. It afflicts both workers and consumers. Uh, as a condition of employment, uh, more than half of American workers, when they say uh, uh, sign a contract saying, I'm working for you, uh, down in the fine print, it says, you know, if uh, you cannot go to court and sue us, um, if you have a grievance uh, you, that you would otherwise do, that way you have to submit to an arbitration process. And it has been the case that when these arbitration processes are submitted to, uh, it, it gets much more favorable uh, results for the employer uh, than would be the case if they, uh, if they went to court these clauses are also in a number of consumer clauses with uh, one's phone company one's cable company one's internet company uh, way down in the fine print but it precludes uh, people using you know l- l- with you know legitimate grievances against those companies from going to court as well um, so uh, one, uh, the, 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 both houses of Congress got together earlier this year to ban uh, forced arbitration in matters of sexual abuse and harassment. Uh, that seemed like uh, a too, too risky for Republicans to oppose. So actually a small, a majority of Republicans actually voted for that in the House and the Senate passed uh, by a voice vote. Uh, now, the bill that passed last, uh, last week uh, in the House uh, actually banned force arbitration for all grievances. And um, the, uh, I think, 113 Republicans who had voted to ban it in, in the case of uh, sexual assault uh, declined slightly from 113 to one. And this Um,
0: one, this one, there's one Republican (laughs) who joined the Democrats in supporting a ban on all forced arbitration. Who is this hero?
1: Well, there's a lesson here. It's one of the craziest Trumpy members of uh, the House Republican delegation, Matt Goetz of Florida. Matt Goetz has been, is under, still under investigation for his role, his alleged role in a sex trafficking ring. And so when this came up first, with the uh, uh, banning forced arbitration in, in cases of sexual assault and harassment, he, of course, uh, voted uh, yes, he would ban it. Uh, and then there was a lot of blowback, like, oh, God, the guy's only covering his ass. Come on, if he weren't under investigation, he wouldn't do this. Uh, and so his response to that, to show that he really, really was uh, uh, not the uh, you know, depraved person who was under indictment, uh, he was the one Republican to vote for banning uh, uh, forced arbitration at all. And he said uh, he gave a little talk on the floor of the House in which he said quite rightly that, uh, you know, if you signed a contract with your phone or your Internet provider or whoever, um, th- 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 this would uh, require you to go to forced arbitration and, you know, it could really screw you. Uh, that's basically what he said. He was absolutely right. And th- there's a lesson here. There's a lesson here that if you want republicans uh, to vote in the public interest they probably should be under investigation <laughs> for uh, a serious crime that that seems to be about the only way you can you can get there now of course it goes to the senate where uh, the opposition to uh getting rid of the filibuster uh you know is uh, is is going to uh make it impossible to pass it's sort of like one anti-democratic uh part of our government comes to the rescue of another anti-democratic part of our social system.
0: I understand that there is one state that has banned forced arbitration in all instances. And what state is that?
1: It is California, um, which is, uh, you know, goes to show that when you have uh, overwhelming uh, democratic majorities, both in the state and in the legislature and in statewide elected office, you can actually do stuff. It's been held up in the courts. It recently, well, recently in, in September, the Ninth Circuit federal court said yes. Uh, you know, of course, this awaits this awaits a Supreme Court, which has been a fan of forced arbitration. At least the six Republicans on the court have been. Uh, the, at that point, it was five uh, ruled in favor of it in 2018. But for the specific congressional legislation, uh, it's uh, you know then then the court's hands are relatively. Relatively tied. Well, more
0: news about the class struggle in America is that there's a big strike at Chevron in Richmond, California. 500 Chevron workers went on strike Monday after they voted down a contract offer from Chevron and the company refused to return to the bargaining table. Their union is the Steelworkers Union. This is one of the largest refineries in California. It's the largest employer in Richmond. It produces gasoline and other fuel. Uh, The union already had negotiated successfully a national contract, but they left local issues open to local problems. And Local 5 in Richmond said that worker fatigue and a lack of staffing were vital issues from from them, and so they're going on strike. What can you tell us about uh, life in the oil refineries these days? Well,
1: first of all, um, a number of years ago, probably about 15 years ago, the steel workers uh, consolidated under their umbrella a, a lot of production-related unions that were small and getting smaller. One of them was the Oil, com- oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Union, which is the union essentially of refinery workers, and I, I suppose also workers at uh, uh, nuclear uh, plants and, and, and so on. And it had been a really militant left-wing union Uh, And it's kind of customary for for the big old CIO unions, industrial unions, to sign national contracts and then uh, uh, give their locals the right to, uh, um, you know, have their own uh, contracts over local issues. And since staffing is obviously an issue at uh, a refinery, like it is in many places during times of pandemic, And since you don't want workers, uh, at least I don't want workers at uh, that kind of potentially explosive uh, facility, uh, stretch very thin, having to work overtime, et cetera, much less in a nuclear plant. uh, I think the the workers have a a very good point. Um, I might also add that getting a contract these days that essentially holds workers harmless in the face of uh, high inflation is, is also a real issue in, in any contractual negotiations going on now.
0: And let's talk about wages. Congress has not passed the Raise the Wage Act, which would set a $15 federal minimum. We had a new report published Tuesday by Oxfam America that said nearly 52 million workers in the United States, about a third of the country's workforce, earned less than $15
1: an hour. What is the federal minimum wage right now? It's a munificent, stunning seven dollars and twenty-five cents, uh, uh, and there are a number of states where that is still the uh, the minimum wage. Uh, I think at this juncture, it's uh, a, a clear majority of states have set their minimum uh, higher than that, which is no great achievement. Uh, but there are some uh, a number of states in the South that in which that is not the case, and a few. Uh, even in the mountain west so uh, this is a, this is a real issue uh, it's unfortunately one thing that uh, Biden can't do by executive action though he has quite commendably uh, essentially issued an executive action saying that anyone doing any, any company doing federal contract work uh, has to has to do that but that still leaves as the Oxfam study says, uh, Maybe a third, an economic policy institute studies a couple of years ago said it was a quarter. but let's let's compromise and say thirty percent of the American workforce still works for less than fifteen dollars an hour. And you again, so much of the American workforce isn't really able to work a full uh, forty hour week. So that certainly is a reduction in income. and then so much of the American workforce is mislabeled as independent contractors, and so they're not even, um, eligible for any statutory minimum wage.
0: And the other thing that the uh, current bill before the Democrats uh, uh, would would fix is the federal minimum minimum wage for tipped workers is $2.13 an hour, and the federal minimum wage for workers under 20 is $4.25 an hour for 90 days. These seem tremendously unjust.
1: Yeah, they are. And uh, I mean, people think of tipped workers. Well, you know, uh, in in a good restaurant, a guy and a and a, and a, and a non-guy, <laughs> a woman can can get all this money in tips. Well, most tip workers don't work in really high-end restaurants, uh, and uh, there are many like uh, uh, the people who park your cars, uh, who aren't accustomed to getting tips at all. Uh, And uh, there's a very good organization called One Fair Wage, uh, which has been working against this and gotten some success in various states. Uh, But, you know, really, this needs to be uh, struck down in in any new federal minimum wage law.
0: One last thing, Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, of course, is holding confirmation hearings about Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. One of my favorite parts of the hearings was when Republicans focused on the fact that her parents had a book on their coffee table when she was growing up by Harvard Law Professor Derek Bell called Faces at the Bottom of the Well, the Permanence of Racism. Um, and somehow this is disqualifying. She shouldn't be a Supreme Court justice because of this book. I wonder what kind of books your parents had on your coffee table that might be used against you by your enemies.
1: Well, that's interesting. Uh, I remember, it wasn't on the coffee table so much, but my parents were uh, what I would describe as uh, anti-communist socialists, so we had Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, which should endear me uh, to, uh, to some on the right. Uh, um, but a number of there were memoirs of wobblies. I, I think there was even the autobiography of Morris Hillquit, who was a perennial chairman of the <laughs> Socialist Party uh, in the 1910s, uh, 20s and early 30s. Uh, clearly, this would make me highly suspect, although, you know, my own life might make me hi- highly suspect as well.
0: We don't hear much about Morris Hillquit on this broadcast, so <laughs> thank you for always, always glad to bring him up if, if necessary, John. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org.
1: Thank you, Harold. Thank you. <laughs>
0: It's the same old story, this is Living in the USA, and I'm John Weiner, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Senate confirmation hearings on Biden's Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown Jackson are underway now. The question and the answers are all predictable. But what should arguments about the court and the Constitution focus on? and who should take part in those debates. For comment, we turn to Joseph Fishkin and William E. Forbath. They're the co-authors of a new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. Joey Fishkin is professor of law at UCLA. He's written, in addition to lots of law review articles, he's written for the Washington Post and the Atlantic. Joey Fishkin, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, great to be here.
0: And Willie Forbath holds the Lloyd M. Benson Chair in Law at the University of Texas. Austin, he's written recently for the New York Times op-ed page and The Atlantic. Willie, welcome. Thank you. Well, please remind us, what is the script for Senate confirmation hearings of Supreme Court nominees? It's very ritualized performance. Who says what?
2: Joey. The nominee says as little as possible. Her supporters say how brilliant she is and what a great person she is. And opponents try to find something that can be some sort of a scandal. But what nobody does is actually talk about the major differences between the two parties' actual views of the Constitution and the law, because that's not part of the script.
0: I remember when John Roberts was testifying before his confirmation as chief justice, he pledged never to forget that, quote, it's my job to call balls and strikes. Judge Jackson said in her opening statement this week, quote, I decide cases from a neutral posture. Nevertheless, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, accused her of having a, quote, hidden agenda and asked if her hidden agenda was, quote, to let violent criminals, cop killers, and child predators back on the streets, close quote. Don't the Republicans have a kind of hidden agenda that is a view of what the Constitution requires, what they want the Supreme Court to do, Willie? They do,
3: although our view is we'd all be better off if they put it on the table. And our view is also they're no different from the Democrats in the broadest sense of having a constitutional vision and a set of principles that they're hoping to promote. The Dems do as well. And we're not here to urge a more wide open confirmation hearing process. That might be better, but we don't think that the, the biggest biggest stakes lie there. We think that it's it's been a bad wrong ter- turn in our political life as a nation to have these fights about what the constitutional vision should be and what the constitution requires and prohibits in this arena at all. We reconstruct a long, long history during which until roughly the latter part of the 20th century, Americans fought about these questions of rival constitutional visions, rival principles, in ordinary politics in party politics in campaigns and on the in the halls of congress or the floor of congress so that it's self-deluding and it's and it's no good for anybody and, and nor for the court to jam all these hidden clashes into the confirmation process or into the court
0: just one footnote here i looked up where was it that judge jackson used the term hidden agenda it was in her undergraduate
2: senior thesis. But what's going on here is they're looking back for some time when Judge Jackson spoke in a normative voice, like spoke th- said things not like how she judges as a judge, because as a judge, she's been very centrist, middle of the road, pretty standard judge. And, you know, there's a sort of frustration on the Republican side that they can't successfully pin her uh, to views that are clearly more liberal than how she has actually acted as a judge. But it's really kind of emblematic of the whole problem with this process, which is we have elevated this idea that judges are sort of the high experts in they're the only ones who can really be trusted to interpret the constitution for us. And so that just puts tremendous pressure on which people are going to be those great guardians. And it would be uh, a lot better if we viewed interpretations of the Constitution as something that all of us do and that politicians, not just judges, uh, have a responsibility to do.
0: Well, we know what Republicans want government to do. They want to protect wealth from redistribution, they want to protect business from regulation and from organized labor, and they say the Constitution is on their side. You say the Democrats today have forgotten that they once had not just political arguments and policy ideas about this, but constitutional arguments on their side in all these fights. What what were the constitutional arguments? Constitutional arguments ran along three
3: great principles. One of them was the Constitution requires government to constrain and prevent oligarchy, hence the title of our new book. That the Constitution requires curbs on concentrated economic power. Why? Because concentrated economic power always turns into concentrated political power and undermines political equality and Republican self-rule. And that that was a mainstay of the sort of founding era's thoughts about political economy. Two, the Constitution requires the kind of economic order that sustains a broad, wide, open middle class. And three, that it has a principle of inclusion across racial, gender, and other lines. And one of the things that gives a special point to taking the Constitution away from the court. Or as Roosevelt said, saving the Constitution from the court, is that these principles don't lend themselves to implementation by the court. They are principles that really call on Congress and lawmakers and the executive branch to implement them. And so there, there's sort of many, many important stakes in shifting our regard for who Who has a special office in laying out what the Constitution requires?
0: You say the Constitution itself requires limitations and and restrictions on oligarchy and the moneyed aristocracy. Of course, progressives and leftists for a long time have been making kind of the opposite argument that the Constitution, at least the Constitution of 1789 was profoundly anti-democratic. You know, the president is chosen by the Electoral College, not by the popular vote. Senators were not elected, but were chosen by state legislatures. There was no universal suffrage. And of course, we have the Constitution's famous defense of slavery, which we've learned a lot about in the last couple of years, the Fugitive Slave Clause, the protections for the slave trade. Doesn't all that suggest that oligarchy was just fine with the founders?
2: There's two important responses to that to that point one is the cross currents at the founding are much more complicated than that simple story there was a profound anti-aristocratic bent to many of our 1789 founding fathers there's a lot of you see it in the prohibition on titles of nobility you see it even more in efforts like those of Thomas Jefferson and others to break up landed estates so you wouldn't have a few rich plantation owners like we eventually got ruling over large areas of of each state. And there was, at the beginning, an important element of we want to prevent an aristocracy, the word they used the most back then, or an oligarchy from emerging. But where you really see this tradition that we're interested in kind of come into its own is in Reconstruction. We think of Reconstruction, which is the moment where we got the most important amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. We think of that as a moment of ending slavery and promoting civil rights. But the radical Republicans understood that you weren't just going to get equality by prohibiting slavery and having civil rights. You also needed to change the entire political economy of the South. You needed to break up the plantation aristocracy you needed to redistribute their lands to the former slaves you needed to build a school system where there wasn't any before if you wanted southern white and black citizens to be able to be full citizens in the republic so really our tradition is much more complicated than the fair critique of of some of the elitist elements of what was going on in 1789 but have you think But the argument in our book is also not an originalist argument. We're making an argument about the constitutional tradition that evolved over the course of U.S. history. So Reconstruction is perhaps its most important moment, but there are a number of other key moments throughout where you see people making arguments in politics that are taking up this anti-oligarchy tradition and refashioning it so that it could do something about the oligarchs emerging in their time.
0: Yeah, there certainly is a, is a historical uh, trend. The 14th Amendment, 1866, <clears throat> guarantees equal protection of the laws. The 15th introduces a right to vote, something that wasn't in the original Constitution. That was 1869. We get direct election of senators in 1912. We get votes for women in 1919. We get 18-year-old voting in 1971. It's interesting, the courts were not part of this at all. This was all pol- regular politics, legislatures. The, kind of the climax of this came during the New Deal era when the Supreme Court began a series of rulings that much of FDR's New Deal was unconstitutional and FDR then proposed a bill to expand the court his bill would have added six justices all of them his own nominees which is perfectly legal then and now the the number of justices on the Supreme Court is not set by the Constitution it's It's set by Congress, it can be changed, it has been changed. A lot of people are saying right now, it should be done again. But in 1937, it was called court packing. And that is a fascinating moment in this history uh, let's talk about that, that moment when FDR announced he was introducing a bill to expand the Supreme Court, because that just kind of called the question on, well, what do you want from the court? He had just won the biggest election victory in American history, and this was his first big legislative initiative since the landslide of 1936. What was his argument? His argument,
3: it wasn't simply that the, that the court has become a super legislature and is forcing its own policy agenda on the nation. That was part of it. His other part of it was, however, that the New Deal itself embodied a constitutional project of the kinds of rights and the kinds of social insurance that were essential to carry on the constitutional experiment. So he was saying that the people have chosen between two constitutional visions. And what we remember of the New Deal was simply economic policy is no business of the court. But also what we misremember is the notion the New Dealers were saying it's no business of the Constitution. That's not what they said. And thinking it is what they said has hobbled us liberals and progressives today because it leaves us without a constitutional case, an affirmative case for why the court should get out of the way and why Congress needs to act or we liberals and progressives by and large have bought into the idea that the Constitution has nothing to say about economic life. The Constitution has nothing to say about concentrated economic power. It has nothing to say about gross economic inequalities. And the conservatives in the right wing have a robust constitutional narrative, which is all about how the court is upholding the Constitution. And we just say, no, it has nothing to say. We could be saying it has a lot to say And it has work that's cut out for the legislature
0: getting back to the hearings this week we don't expect much from the senators or from the nominee but what do you think would happen if judge jackson at her confirmation hearings instead of saying i decide cases from a neutral posture what if she had said the constitution requires protecting our republican form of government from becoming a moneyed aristocracy or oligarchy What if she had said, I believe we have a constitutional duty to ensure that wealth and economic and political power is widely distributed among all the people? What would happen
2: then? See, this might be why you don't put us uh, in charge of being political consultants for how nominees should get through a closely divided Senate. But while I'm not advocating that she make those points, I think it's important for us to open up the space. To say that those nonetheless are true, that we don't have a republic if we have too much concentrated economic and political power in too few hands, and that that's why we do need Congress today to continue to enact the kinds of laws from social insurance to campaign finance restrictions that would help restrain the current tendency toward oligarchy. And if we can't do it through the Supreme Court, that's nothing new. That's nothing new. The only time that the courts have ever really been on the side of progressive reform in American history is this sort of brief moment of the Warren court. Much more commonly courts as they are now are the opponents of progressive reforms. And it's against the courts that you have to work in order to uh, uphold the constitution.
3: Yeah, all we would ask from Judge Justice Jackson is to step out of the way. Is to encourage her, her fellow justices to stay out of the way and point out that there are constitutional stakes in upholding the kinds of progressive legislation that that we think the Constitution requires. So it's not a heroic role that we would kind of cut out for her, even if we, if even if she made the mistake of en- enlisting us as her advisors. <laughs>
0: So we need to challenge the idea that the Supreme Court gets the final word, that the conversation stops after they tell us what the Constitution says. Joseph Fishkin and William R. Forbath are co-authors of the new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. Joey and Willie, thanks for talking with us today.
3: Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Weiner talking about politics, thinking about the left. Jamie Raskin, the member of Congress from Maryland, is best known as manager of Donald Trump's impeachment trial after January 6th. He also taught constitutional law for 25 years at American University Law School. Now he's a member of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. His new book is Unthinkable, Trauma Truth in the Trials of American Democracy. It was a number one bestseller. It describes his fight to uphold the Constitution during the Trump administration and the loss of his son Tommy to suicide on December 31st, 2020, six days before the attack on the Capitol. Last week he spoke with Katrina Vanden and John Nichols at a Nation event. Today we have highlights of that conversation. First, he was asked about the future of the January 6th committee. What will become of the committee and its work if Republicans take control of the House after the midterms? Which seems likely?
4: You know, the House of Representatives, unlike the Senate, is a body that ends every two years, because the whole body is elected all over again. whereas you know the Senate, because of the overlapping six-year terms just keeps going. It's a continuing body, and we're not. So I think that the bipartisan select committee on January 6th feels very much the urgency of what we're doing, um, because if the House, uh, God forbid, were to fall into wrong hands, um, it would almost certainly just be terminated um, because they're not interested in it. Or I, I, I take it that the debate in the Republican caucus is do you just end it? Or do you do what they've tried to do um, in terms of like the Mueller investigation, which is you turn the investigation on the investigators, which is what like Newt Gingrich has been saying that those of us on the committee are going to be the targets of the investigation, um, which is, you know, obviously a fascistic
0: tactic. And what will the committee do before that?
4: We're going to have hearings, which I think will be explosive when people see. This was not some kind of uh, rally that got a little bit out of hand when they see that it was not, um, you know, Trump's mob greeting our officers with flowers and hugs and kisses, as he said. Um, And we'll do a report and we're gonna do a report in a really powerful, cogent, compelling way. uh, I hope with a mixture of text and video to explain to people Uh, what happened. I mean, maybe we'll even transform the concept of what a report is um, in our committee so that people will be able to understand it at a whole lot of different levels. Um, But this was an attack on our government. And, uh, you know, you guys have probably heard me talk before about the Three Rings of Sedition, a mob riot surrounding a violent insurrection conducted by Domestic violent extremist groups, white nationalist, racist groups, like the Proud Boys, who Trump told to stand back and stand by, like uh, the Oath Keepers, who've been charged with um, seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to overthrow the government, like the militia groups, the QAnon networks, uh, the Three Percenters, the Unification Church, and so on. A lot of political, religious, authoritarian cults were in there. And then that was surrounding a coup, an attempt by Trump and his political entourage to overthrow Biden's uh, 306 vote uh, majority in the Electoral College, um, to lower it below 270. And at that point, to kick the whole contest into the House of Representatives for a so-called contingent election under the 12th Amendment. And the reason for that, if you're asking why would Trump want the House of Representatives under Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats to decide, it's because um, the 12th Amendment provides that we're not voting one member, one vote. We're voting one state, one vote. And they had 27 state delegations after the 2020 elections. We have 22. Pennsylvania, nine to nine is split right down the middle. So even had they lost Um, through the defection of that large representative from Wyoming, Liz Cheney, uh, they still would have had 26 votes to, um, if they could have just convinced Pence to do this, to reject those electors coming in from Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, they could have declared Trump the president. He would have invoked the Insurrection Act, declared something like martial law, finally brought in the National Guard, to put down the insurrectionary chaos he'd unleashed against us, declare himself a hero and president for the next four years. And then we would have moved into a very different kind of government. And that's what they had planned for us.
0: In the impeachment trial for Trump's crimes on January 6th, what was the strategy there? Well,
4: um, you know, we had the most remarkable team of managers and former prosecutors, public defenders, people who really knew what they were doing. And, you know, my main role was to say, this is not a collection of speeches throw away all the speeches. We're just telling a story from beginning to middle to end. And when we have to address legal stuff, we'll address it. We'll punch back. We'll explain uh, why the constitution's totally on our side. And of course, the Trump's lawyers ended up being so pitiful that we didn't even have to do that much of that. Um, but we wanted to tell a story that really stuck in their minds. And we, we did get seven of the Republicans to join us from New England, the Mid Atlantic, the South, the Midwest, the West, Alaska—you know—from all over the country—that's 14 percent of the Republican caucus, um, and it's just—it's uh, sad to me that uh, McConnell, you know, made that speech where he basically said we had proven our case. He said he had no doubt that, actually, factually, morally, uh, Donald Trump was responsible. He basically said we had proven our case, but they didn't have jurisdiction. Uh, to exercise over the trial because Trump had left office, which was a legal claim that had been rejected on the first day of the trial by the Senate in a 54 to 46 vote, and a legal claim that's been rejected basically since the beginning of the Republic. It's been made repeatedly, and it's always rejected. But don't get me started on that. Um, yeah. But the, you know, that's like in a criminal prosecution, if somebody says, you can't use that gun against me, Because it was illegally seized and the court finds no it wasn't illegally seized at that point you have to drop it you move to the facts of the trial and if you go back to that later that is what we call jury nullification that's the jury stepping outside of its role as the decider of fact and deciding on some other basis and that's essentially what McConnell did and I think it's because he did not have enough republicans to go along with him. if he'd had a majority of the Republicans he' had twenty six of them then I think he would have done it because he would have been, um, he would have been assured of his own continuity in office, but of course he was afraid that Trump would organize an overthrow of his leadership.
0: then Jamie Raskin was asked about the evidence that the committee has gathered in its recent investigation
4: I mean one of the most damning pieces of evidence uh, to my mind uh, both for this process but also when we in the impeachment trial was. That after Trump saw what was going on, after the violence overrode the Capitol, you know, dozens and dozens of officers getting smashed in the face and sprayed with chemical agents and beat up after they they broke our windows, stormed our doors, shut down uh, the counting of electoral college votes for the first time in American history, then chanted hang Mike Pence and driving him out of the building. Trump tweets out, you know, not, you know, leave my vice president alone, but he tweets out um, Mike Pence did not have the courage to do what needed to be done or, you know, something to that effect. Um, and, um, you know, th- there, there's a lot of that. It's similar, you know, to what I view now as a dress rehearsal for January 6th, which was the attack on the Michigan state Capitol, which then turned into a plot to kidnap and assassinate um, the, uh, the, the governor um, and, uh, again, when she was, you know, basically being hounded and chased and threatened with her life, Trump is still, um, inciting the mob against her, uh, talking about, you know, how, you know, uh, you know, she's, she's been violating everybody's rights and so on. So uh, Gretchen Whitmer, I'm sure could recognize a lot of what happened to Mike Pence on that day. But why has it
0: been so hard to nail trump
4: you know most corporate ceos would understand uh and most mob bosses would understand what trump does um you know everything is a wink and a nod everything is done through other people uh he surrounds himself with loyal sycophants who uh know what he wants to accomplish nothing is ever written down if it is it's ripped up into tiny little pieces of paper um and um you know, he also travels with an army of lawyers, you know, ever since he was a kid with, with daddy's money. So I know it's maddening to people. And, uh, you know, he, he really is the poster boy for white male privilege in America. I mean, you know, if you ever doubt that white male privilege exists, look at the career of Donald Trump. Um, But having said all that, you know, I'm with Dr. King. I think, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice and he will get his comeuppance in the end. And, You know, in terms of the January 6th Select Committee, I mean, our goal, um, our primary goal is not individual accountability. Um, Our goal is collective and public accountability. Um, And we need to make the changes that we need to strengthen our democratic institutions with uh, voting rights through the electoral college system. As long as we're going to have it, we need to protect the, the popular voice in it. There are a lot of things that we need to do. Um, and those are the kind of changes that the January Six Committee is focused on.
0: Next, he was asked, "What is to be done with our flawed system of elections, and what about ranked choice voting?"
4: Well, um, I am the sponsor of the ranked choice voting bill in uh, in Congress with my my buddy Don Byer from Virginia, and. Um, You know, Donald Trump's election within the Republican Party is actually a pretty good demonstration of why we need ranked choice voting. He never really went above, I think it was 33 or 35 percent. You know, a majority of the Republicans, I think, you know, were pretty repulsed by what he was having to offer, but he just sort of went after each opponent one by one. And then he was kind of like the last guy standing um, ranked choice voting is all about making sure that you actually have majority support um, and it reduces negative campaigning. Um, and um, so I'm all for that. You know, I, I I think, you know, as I was saying at the beginning, we got to get back on the growth road of democracy. And that means, uh, you know, we need statehood for people in Washington, D.C. That's seven hundred thirteen thousand disenfranchised Americans who've been you know kicked around for too long, who deserve their statehood, three and a half million people in Puerto Rico um, who deserve their statehood. It means we need real voting rights protection for everybody because the voter suppression statutes are now targeting early voting, weekend voting, mail-in balloting, absentee balloting, you know, crazy laws like the one in Georgia, which say it's a crime to give somebody a bag of potato chips while they're waiting in a six hour line to vote, you know. Um, so, um, we've got to get that done, but you see the kind of matrix of GOP democracy suppression we're in, we can't pass that through the Senate because of the filibuster. So the filibuster protects the voter suppression statutes, which protect GOP majorities in the legislatures, which protect their gerrymandering of our districts. So you've got basically blue states that continue to have Republican legislatures, like you know pennsylvania i think wisconsin you tell me john i think they still do i mean i mean it's just an outrageous situation but the gerrymandering is self-perpetuating from decade to decade and if all you care about is power and you literally have no agenda i mean the the gop convention in 2020 came back with no platform for the first time in the history of modern political parties if you have literally no agenda then your, your agenda is whatever Donald Trump says it is and voter suppression and just hanging on to power. And that's what we're up against. You know, Madeleine Albright says in her book, which is really pretty good, um, fascism should not be understood as having a specific ideological content. Fascism should be understood as a strategy for taking and then holding power. And that's an illuminating way of thinking about what we're up against today.
0: Finally, Jamie Raskin was asked about the Constitution and the deep flaws in its construction, especially the compromises with slavery.
4: I mean, first of all, there were differences among the founders. Um, Tom Paine was an abolitionist. Benjamin Franklin was an abolitionist. Um, And, you know, Tom Paine, he was extraordinary. I mean, he basically, I mean, even the most radical people opposing the British tyranny still were defining themselves as Britishmen and still were asking for the rights of Britishmen under the Magna Carta. And when Tom Paine wrote uh, Common Sense, he basically was calling for independence and he was calling for a Republican form of government and saying, we don't need the the kings and we don't need the unification of church and state and we don't need any of that stuff. Um, And like That's just the absolute radicalism of the, you know, the revolutionary spirit uh, of Tom Paine. And, you know, what do you do with those who made these, these fateful, um, just humiliating compromises with slavery, like Thomas Jefferson? I mean, you know, you take them for what they're worth. I mean, Jefferson should be celebrated for the language that he put in the Declaration about all men being created equal. Um, and the inalienable rights of people, and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the consent of the governed. Even though he didn't live up to it, uh, even though he was a hypocrite, um, okay, um, he he established those concepts that later generations of radical democrats, who had greater, much greater vision than Jefferson, were able to use to expand the application of the Constitution. Um, And so, you know, I think we can take them for what they're worth. But I mean, I view the abolitionists, Frederick Douglass, um, you know, Wendell Phillips, the people who fought for abolition and then fought uh, to win the Civil War and the Reconstruction also as founders of our constitution, as framers of the Reconstruction Constitution because they are, you know, they were so critical to the changes. That we made. If you look at the amendments that we've had since the Bill of Rights, there's 17 of them. The vast majority have been about expanding democracy, voting rights, um, and the application of constitutional principles to more and more people. So the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, 14th Amendment equal production due process, 15th Amendment bans race discrimination and voting, 17th Amendment shifts the mode of election of US senators from the legislatures to the people. The 19th Amendment gives us women suffrage. 23rd Amendment says people in DC can participate in presidential elections. 24th Amendment bans poll taxes, 26th Amendment lowers the voting age to 18. Like that is the real trajectory of our development as a union. That's what the Trumpists hate. That's what they can't handle. I mean, they they still want to go back to the state legislatures picking US senators, what the populists and the progressives called corporation senators, because big corporations, oil companies. Uh, would come in Standard Oil and just buy senators by spreading money around the, the legislatures. Um, so the, the, that's the momentum that we've got to keep going against uh, the racism, the white supremacy, the corporate rule that they've got in mind for us.
0: Jamie Raskin, speaking at a Nation event last week, his number one bestseller is called Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. We look forward to seeing him soon in primetime TV coverage of the public hearings of the January 6th committee starting in April. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. In the upcoming midterms, there's one incumbent Democratic member of the House who's at the top of the list of Republican targets nationally. Angie Craig, she represents the suburban district south of of the Twin Cities. It had had been Republican for a long time, but she won in 2018 and again in 2020. The district is now rated as a toss-up by the experts. The Republican challenging her is the guy who lost to her in 2020. He's already raised a million dollars and will certainly get the big bucks from Republican donors. Angie Craig's number one issue is that in the words of her website, "...throughout the last few decades, wealth and power have become concentrated into the hands of fewer and fewer people, and everyday Minnesotans have suffered for it." Quote. She wants to protect the rights of unions and their members to organize and collectively bargain, and she wants to establish national paid family leave. Her challenger is Tyler Kistner. He's running on the fact that he was an active duty Marine for nine years, and his big issues are what he calls the political indoctrination of our students in public schools. He's especially focusing on the teaching of critical race theory, which he says should be banned in public schools. He also says defunding the police is a big issue, and He's against it. He's a Trump loyalist who CNN reports has embraced Trump's big lie that Joe Biden did not win the 2020 election. So, this is a classic matchup between a Democrat focusing on bread and butter issues and a Trump Republican fighting a culture war. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. that's it for today's living in the usa our sound editors are will broten and alan minsky our social media maven is renee reynolds kpfk's programming traffic director is matt perez thanks as always to rye cooter for our theme music mambo sinuendo